We are in the middle of a uh, sermon series, as, as Jerry said at the beginning in the announcements, um, that has brought us to the upper room uh, during the, the week, the march to the cross. And in the upper room, we get this great master level class of, of what grace is, what, who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what he's going to do. And it's just a phenomenal section of scriptures. It's through the Gospel of John, chapters uh, uh, 13 through 17. Some of the other Gospels uh, bring about some of that teaching that's up there, but really the Gospel of John has the longest sit with and, and be at the feet of Jesus as he teaches. And so I'd recommend that you, that you do that. And so what we did, uh, Jerry and I, as we looked at that, and we thought there are a lot of promises being made in this upper room teaching. A lot of statements that are truly, truly, I say to you, if you do this, this will happen. Those things are there. And so we lifted out promises that Jesus made throughout this whole upper room teaching. And there's more than what we're doing for Lent. Lent is only, at the most, uh, seven uh, messages if you count Monday Thursday. And so there's more in there, and they all kind of interlock too. They kind of overlap each other. And it just gives you a profound picture of the one true Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we lift those promises and we're looking at them through Lent to prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday because what Jesus did on Easter Sunday with taking on the cross, dying, and rising again, we learn that all those promises that he made and all the promises in the Old Testament that were made by God, they all come together and they are fulfilled. And that for us all should bring about an assurance of hope a hope that you can stand on with full authority and full confidence and boldness that the one in whom has called your name to follow him is Jesus the Lord. And so that's what I hope that we do during Lent. Lent's about preparation, that we will prepare our hearts to be reminded of that truth because there's so many things in our world that's always been this way. It's this, no different. We're no different than anybody else eons ago. There's so much in the world that's wanting to, to, to take that hope, to rob us of that, and to make us think that Jesus is not real. Let's not let that happen to us. And so this uh, Sunday, we're in our third message of the series. So far, we've heard the promise of the new covenant where Jesus gathers his disciples around the table and they have the new Passover feast. He's fulfilling the Old Testament covenant and establishing anew that his body broken, his blood spilled is for us. He's got us covered. Our sins are covered and forgiven by his sacrifice. That's the first promise that we looked at in the series. Then last week, we looked at the, the new commandment, and it isn't really new. The Old Testament tells us that, that one of the things that God commands is to love each other as we love ourselves. Jesus himself says that and teaches that during his ministry. But then at the upper room, on the week to the cross, he turns the heat up a little bit, and he says to his disciples, those who follow him, it's not just loving one another as you love yourself but to love one another, both within the community of faith, and I would add even those to, to outside the world, that we would love in a way that he has loved us. That sacrificial, I lay my life down for you, love. F.D. Bruner, the commentary that I used, said that if we do that, it is the single most greatest missionary effort that the church can engage in. To, to love the world with the same uh, intensity, with the same posture that Jesus loved 
you. And when you do that, you see transformation. You see people change because of how you are loving them. In fact, the promise is if you do that, the world will know that, that we are the disciples of Christ. And furthermore, would know who Jesus is. So today, we are back up in the upper room and we're getting a, a third promise. And it's a promise that speaks about and talks and teaches us about Christian joy. Christ-centered, Christ-authored, Christ-assured joy. Now to talk about that, I'm going to exit from the upper room for just a second. I'm going to go back to my trusty examples, Pixar, Disney Plus, okay? So now all of you, if you've been along with me with these, these first three weeks, so far I have made mention of a Pixar movie, a Broadway musical, and now I'm back again to Pixar again. I need you to understand that my family does more than just watch TV. Okay, because you can see, <laughs> that's why I come up here like, what did you do yesterday? Oh, we watched TV. Actually, when I watch the kids on Wednesday, my day off, we may, we may engage in some TV viewing to my wife's chagrin as she comes home. What did you do today? I'm like, I kept the children alive. Thank you. So anyways, so Disney Pixar, there's this movie called Inside Out. Raise your hands if you've seen this movie, Inside Out. Folks, it is probably... The most profound Pixar movie that I think that they've done. I'll just go out there and say that. If you get a chance to watch this movie, please do so. And please do so after today's message. Let's just get a premise of what this, what this movie is. Yeah, don't do it now. Don't pull it up on your phone now. Jenny's over there logging into her Disney Plus. No. So, <laughs> so anyway, this, this movie, they, these are the characters. And what this movie is, is... It's a young girl named Riley. She's about 11 years old. And we go inside her mind and we see these characters. And so we, we walk with Riley through the journey of the story. She moves from one place to another. It's a new place, new school. She goes through a whole realm of emotions. And eventually she tries to run away. And we watch these people, these emotions, take control of her mind. It actually, it actually has a control board that they, that they work on to have Riley then behave. And the first emotion that we meet in this movie is right there, dead center, is joy. And she's upside down because there's a lot of reasons why I think she's upside down in this poster. But for right now, it's because she's goofy, she's lighthearted, she's happy. In fact, if you look in your bulletins, there's a quote from her. She just wants Riley to be happy. That's what she does as this emotion. It's her mission in life that Riley will always be happy. And all the other emotions that come along, disgust, fear, anger, and then most importantly, sadness, she doesn't want them on the controls. She tries very, very hard to get them off of the controls so that Riley is always experiencing happiness. Now, there's a problem with that. Because we all know, obviously, as we're watching this movie, you can't, Life is just not full of just happiness. But the deeper problem here is that Joy has an identity crisis of her own. She thinks that her mission is just to bring about happiness, and happiness is not joy. What you need to see here is that each of them are in a color scheme. 
And their whole cells is monochromatic, save for a little bit of differences in their clothes. We could have some, we could have an English lesson on that if we want. There's not enough time for that. So just stay with me. They're all monochromatic in terms of their body, right? So there's green disgust, green hair, green eyes. There's fear, purple, all purple, purple eyes. There's anger, he's red, fire, red eyes, and then sadness, all blue with blue eyes. But then look at joy. Joy is all yellow, light comes from her throughout the movie, but look at her face. Her hair is sadness blue, and her eyes are sadness blue. Joy's gonna go on an adventure in this movie to realize that her mission is not happiness. Her mission is to see joy, authentic joy, through sadness. In fact, throughout the movie, you'll see Joy cry a couple of times, and she doesn't even realize it, but she's crying. She's experiencing sadness, and she can't name it. All she wants to do is make Riley happy. And so we go back to the upper room now, because Jesus is going to give us a promise and a teaching on true Christ-centered joy. And what we have to understand here in this room is that happiness and joy are not necessarily synonymous of each other. We've done joy sermons in this place for the last couple of years, so it's not really new information. In fact, to cite from Pastor Jerry from a message, I asked him, I said, what is your definition of joy? And he gave it to me in some quote. So this is what he said. He said that happiness is the emotion when something happens to you. It's an outside thing. You've experienced something, there's a cause and effect, and then you have happiness. You smile, it's great. Joy, however, is something that wells up inside of you because of something that has happened internally inside of you. Happiness, if you were to look at the opposite of happiness, is sadness, right? If you're sad, you're not happy. If you're happy, you're not sad. That's just kind of how those things work. But joy, because it's not, it's not synonymous with happiness, joy and sadness, joy and sorrow, they are companions. They are friends in our emotions. In fact, you'll see that in this movie. At the end of this movie, there's this beautiful scene where joy and sadness join hands together, and they press the control board and have Riley feel a, a new feeling that she hasn't felt before, a more complex, a more whole, a more complete feeling of joy coming from her sadness. You see, Riley tried to run away, and when she came back to her parents, all she could do was just cry, 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 cry. And joy comes up and grabs sadness's hand, and you see Riley's face. She doesn't smile. She takes a sigh, and she leans into her parents with full-on security, with full-on completeness, because within that sadness, she's experiencing the joy of being reunited with her family again. It is profound. If you watch this movie and you've had kids or you know children or you have little brothers and sisters, it gets you right in the feels. I was watching it yesterday and I've cried like three or four times. Carrie was working on things. She's looking over. I'm like, Sam, it's fine. It's nothing. It's nothing going on. Just make me happy. It's okay. Happiness, or excuse me, joy and sorrow, they're companions. They are two friends achieving the same objective which is to posture our hearts for the Christian towards Jesus, to lay hold of him, to be united with him, even in the darkest of our times. 
And so when I put the sermon together about joy, this is, we're, gonna, we're not going to go there yet, but John 16 is where we're going to go. But all through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, the idea of joy is on repeat. Jesus brings it up time and time again. I'm telling you these things so that you will have joy and that your joy will be complete. I want my joy to be your joy and you will have my, it's just joy, joy, joy. It's all throughout there. And so as I looked at that, why then is joy an important thing for Jesus? Why does he take the moment here in John 16 to give a teaching about it, to let us know how we're going to experience it? What then makes Jesus joyful? And to answer that question, I looked at the gospel, I'm almost positive it's Luke, I'm having a moment, but it's the gospel of Luke and it's the parable of the lost things. There are three parables that we go through in the gospel of Luke that talk about lost things and it gives us an image of what, Jesus, what makes Jesus joyful. If you remember these parables, there were three. The first one was the parable of the lost sheep. I'll go through it real quick. There was 99, there was 100 sheep, one of them leaves and gets lost. And so the shepherd in this parable is beside himself. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. He finds the one. Does anyone remember what happens after he finds the one sheep? What? They have a party. They rejoice. It says everyone rejoices. He hoists the lamb on his shoulders and everyone rejoices. Then we get the next parable, the parable of the lost coin. There's a lady. She has coins and she loses one. She rips up her house. Can't find it. Finally finds the coin. And what happens? There's rejoicing. Yes, there's a theme here, people. Rejoicing. Yes, there is rejoicing. She has found the coin. And then there's the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son who squandered his inheritance and he left his father. And while he was off in a far off land, the son came to himself. He came to a realization. I need to go back to my dad. If I'm just a servant in his house, Everything will be great. And as he's on his way back, what does the father do? Does the father wait there for the son to come to him? No, the father runs to the son, embraces the son, puts the family ring on the son. And then what do they do? They have a party. They rejoice because the loss has been found. What brings Jesus joy? is that we, the lost, would be found. And not only found, would be with him. And not only with him, would be embraced. And the family ring, that he would claim us as his own. That's what he means when he says, this is my joy, and I want my joy to be your joy, and your joy to be complete. That I have called you by name, and I've, I've, I've grabbed a hold of your heart, and I've claimed you as my own, and that we are together. And when that happens, what a joy of rejoicing, the day of rejoicing that will be. You've heard the song, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart, right? Where? And what happens? It stays. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We have a promise from Christ. But what it means to experience joy, and what I would have you remember is this that we have his joy. Those who are called by name, those who place the faith in Christ, we have his joy, the joy of reunification, the joy of his presence, the joy of, of being claimed, his joy, joy, joy down in our hearts. And there the promise is it will always stay.
Let's open up to John chapter 16. Let's take a second. So we're going to go through the gospel. John chapter 16, verses 16 and following. Jesus now then gathers his disciples together. He gives them a teaching and teaches, gives them building blocks of what it means to experience the true meaning of joy. Now, there is the verses 16 and following. I, I, I was studying and, I, and read that this is possibly one of the longest stream of thoughts in the New Testament that is utterly confusing. That if you get into it without the, without the resolution, you just get all turned around. Like, you read this section, like, what is he saying? In fact, the disciples will say exactly that. Let's look at verse 16, John chapter 16 and following. Jesus says a little while to his disciples, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, he says, you will, you will not see me. Well, that's foreboding. And then again, in a little while, you, you will see me. And it's because I'm, I'm going to, to, the, to the Father. And they're bewildered, and they're looking at each other. And John records, so they were saying, what does this mean by a little while? We have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I love the fact that the gospel writer of John, John the gospel writer, takes a moment to record that we have no idea what he's talking about, period. Like, just like, what is going on? It gives me great hope, because when I read scriptures and I don't know, I can be like, well, neither did the disciples. So then 19, verse 19 Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me? Here comes the promise, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. Let's take a second. It's promise A of A and B. There's a second part to this, but let's just take a minute. So Jesus says, so I'm going to peace out for a little bit, and then I'm going to come back. In the time that I peace out, you are going to weep and lament and be sorrowful. And that Greek word for sorrowful is distress, painful distress. A, a, a grief-stricken grief feeling of utter loss. You're going to feel that. And as I thought about that, as, as we put together these, these building blocks of joy, we have to kind of call out that white elephant in the room. As Jesus is defining what experiencing joy is, he takes the moment and says, when you experience joy first, you might have this. You will experience weeping, lamenting, and sorrow. And so as I put that down as that first building block, I thought we have to just say that here in this room, that depression and the feelings of sorrow are true, actual feelings, that we will 100% in this life feel to varying degrees. And that Jesus takes the moment and says, this is a truth. Knowing me and being with me does not absolve you from that. Knowing me and being with me does not absolve you from pain. This is going to happen. And for you disciples, it's going to happen very, very soon because I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave in a way that's very jarring. And you're going to be afraid and distressed 
and sorrowful. One, because I'm not no longer with you. Think about the disciples. For three years, they put all of their eggs into this basket. They, they left their jobs and their professions, and they followed after them and witnessed all these amazing things. And now Jesus says to them around this table, hey, guess what? This has been great. I'm out. You'll be fine. I mean, they have to be not only sorrow-filled, but very much afraid of what all that means. But then he says to them, your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Oh, how, how in the world is that going to, to happen? How is my sorrow going to turn into joy? So the first building block that we see here is that there is a promise that weeping, lamenting, and experiencing sorrow is going to happen. It's going to happen. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus knows this all too well. The Hebrews uh, writer captures it, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another name for Jesus is man of sorrows. Jesus knows that they're going to experience sorrow, but guess what? He's going to experience the true and ultimate sorrow and pain that is going to happen. So what? Hebrews says that there would be joy. You're going to experience the sadness and the sorrow. And then he goes on and he says, not only will you experience the sadness and sorrow, but the people who don't believe in me, the people who have no business with me whatsoever, the people who mock me until the end of their days, they're actually going to rejoice at your pain. Well, this is just a magical journey, isn't it? As we put together building blocks of joy, the first thing out of the gate, you're going to have sorrow and distress. In fact, Jesus tries to explain what kind of sorrow it is. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has this sorrow because her hour has come. And when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you will have sorrow now. That type of sorrow, he says, that pain is very much like when a woman gives birth. Now, I paused here for a second when I was planning the service because I am a father of three. I have experienced such things. Not personally, I stood over to the side and was giving ice chips like a good husband. But I said to my wife, so when you have these babies, it's all good, right? Because you forgot it, right? And after she got done throwing things at me, she looks at me and she says, no, 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 definitely remember the pain that comes with this. There may be a moment where, where everything goes black and all of a sudden you have a baby, but for the most part, I remembered it. And I said, well, no, no, Carrie. <laughs> Scriptures say here that you forget all those things. So <laughs> what's Jesus? He's just saying that. It's part of this life on this side of heaven, this, this broken, chaotic life. You're going to experience such deep pain and sorrow. And for the disciples specifically, the sorrow and pain they're going to feel is his absence. He's not going to be there. There's, there's something about being in proximity with, with the Lord that is, that is very important in all these teachings. His absence creates uncertainty and chaos, but his presence brings about peace and here brings about joy. 
So he says you're going to have sorrow on the men, and then the world is going to be against you. They are going to rejoice at my absence. Why would the unbelieving world rejoice at the absence of Christ? Because if Jesus is the light into the world that shows the truth, they want the darkness. They want to live in there and so that they can keep on keeping on without being confronted with the truth of their sin. I was at a Target in Florida a couple of months ago, waiting in line, minding my own business, and coming to me, walking towards me to get in line is this young gentleman with a black shirt on with a, um, an image of the satanic church on his shirt. And it said, not today, Jesus. And I was... I, I felt so many things. One, I felt a little nervous, because I'm thinking like anyone who has that much hatred inside of them, I don't know, really trust what's going on here. But then was led to, in some ways, sorrow. What has gone on in this young man's life that he hates the Lord that much? But Jesus says, there will be people who will rejoice at my absence. So where does joy come then, Lord? Sorrow, people wearing satanic shirts, where does this joy come from? And he promises this, because in a little while, I'm not gonna be here, but in a little while, I will return. I will see you again, he says in verse 22, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take that joy from you. Remember in the beginning, we said, what brings Jesus joy? It's the reunification, the being found, the being claimed, the being together with the Lord. And so he says, listen, I gotta go because I have to go, things have to happen. You need to sit with this pain, you need to sit with this sorrow because I am dying for this very reason. And as I die and be risen again and come back to you, your hearts will completely rejoice because I am back. And I have secured our relationship together, and you can be with me. And guess what? Nobody, nothing in this world will ever, ever take this joy away. Amen. So this is great. Wonderful news. The disciples, they had a ringside seat to this whole promise because they got to see him go and, and take on the cross and die and rise again and appear to them, scaring them a little. But then again, they, they came around to it. Here he is, the ascended Jesus. They got to experience all of that. But then what did Jesus do after he came back from the grave? He gathered them together and said, okay, guess what? Peace and out again. See you later. I'll come back at some point. Don't know when. Father doesn't know. It's okay. I'll come back. You go and do you, and I will send you the Holy Spirit, and you go live out these lives, spreading my joy, my truth, my light to everybody. Okay, bye. So now we live in that realm of Jesus not being here. So the second part of the sermon is then, if we know the building blocks of joy, that there's going to be sorrow, that people are going to scoff, but it's okay because he has secured this, joy is complete because Jesus has risen and he has claimed us as his own, then how do we live this out in the messiness of this world that we are still living in? How do we live this out knowing who Christ is, but Christ not physically being in this world and sin still running rampant. To do that, we go to Philippians chapter 3. Stay with me, we're almost there. We go to Philippians chapter 3. And why do I go to Philippians? Written by Paul, Philippians is often quoted and often named the epistle of joy because he uses the word rejoice several times. 
And the reason why Paul uses the word rejoice several times, this is post-ascension now, right? Jesus is gone up into the world, and now the church needs to flourish. They have received the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is trying to guide them through this. What does Paul know? Well, he knows a lot of things. One, he knows his life prior to being claimed as Jesus' own. He says, I am the chief of Pharisees. I persecuted this church. I chased after this church and led people to their deaths because of this, for righteousness' sake. I know what my life was like before until, until Christ grabbed a hold of me. And so now that I know that I am Christ's own, this is how we now shall live. And this is how I would say we have joy made complete on this side of heaven. Philippians 3, verse 12. It's talking about salvation. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but he's saying I have not experienced the fullness of salvation. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. The English gets it a little bit wonky here. What Paul is saying is, I press on, I pursue with great intensity. That's what that word means. Coincidentally, it's the same word he used when he described how he persecuted the church. Now with Christ, we get a total vision change. I now pursue after Christ who first laid a hold of me. I pursue that which I have obtained, but only because Christ first did it in me, is what is the thought here. And we press on and we move. So brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he goes on, our citizenship is in heaven. We await for the Savior who will transform our lonely body into his glorious body. How do we live on this side of heaven? How do we live out our joy-filled, being-with-Jesus-created lives? We press on in the midst of whatever sorrow we may be in. Now, we need to take a moment, preaching on joy like this can be cheap and dangerous. We have to remember that first foundational block of weep and sorrow and lament. The answer to our depression and the answer to our sorrow is not necessarily just pray harder. There does, the joy does come from meditating on the word and being there with Jesus. But it's not just that. It's meditating and being there with Jesus and laying your sorrows at the feet of the one who took them onto the cross. And trusting and knowing that he listens and is hearing you. In the Inside Out movie, Sadness is seen comforting another character. And Joy gets all upset. And she says, why? Why are you making this character cry? And Sadness says, because he needed it. He needed to be heard. He needed, I needed to listen to him. When Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, died, 
he waited extra days before going to see the family. Martha meets him as he gets there and says, if you were only here, my brother would be alive. Why did Jesus wait? Because we need to feel the sting and the weight of those sorrows. They are real. And not only did he wait, but when he comes and he sees everybody, he listens to Mary and Martha, and then what does he do? He weeps with them. Because we have a Savior who knows it all, who's experienced it all, and he sits there with you in the midst of that. And then the joy that comes from it is because he raises Lazarus from the dead. Because the joy really is being united with Christ, that he has conquered life, he's conquered death, so that we have eternal life. Now, how do we how do we do this? How do we do this here? Because I don't want it to be cheap. One of the ways is when we hear our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ say and have the boldness to say, I am not well. It is not well with my soul. I am not having a good day. We sit with them and comfort them. We listen to their sorrows and we purely just love on them and in so doing, shine the light of Christ's joy for them. The physical presence of Jesus may not be here, but the Holy Spirit has been given you who have called on him as your savior. And therefore, when you do these things, loving each other in the way that he has loved you, when you do those things, you bring about the light of his joy in the midst of their darkened worlds. It may not wash all that darkness away, but it shines a light and it gives them hope. And it brings about a sense of joy that Jesus Christ still knows them, that Jesus Christ has sent you there to them, that Jesus Christ is weeping with them and is with them in those dark times. How do we experience joy in this crazy world? We press on. We pursue after the goal that's been set before us, knowing full well that he has already made that possible in our hearts, that he calls you his own. We have the joy of the Lord down in our hearts, and down in our hearts, it will always stay, even when the world starts to fade to black. And so my friends, if you see folks who are in the midst of darkness, sit with them, listen, hear, love, provide for them without having to ask. And if you are in the midst of darkness, making your bed in the valley of whatever it is, don't try to shoulder those burdens all on your own because it's not going to work. It's not about being happy. It's about being reminded that you are loved by Jesus Christ. And reminding yourself of that brings about the light of joy, which is down in our hearts, down in our hearts, here to stay. No one sang with me? So I guess that means we need to call this to an end.
Gracious Heavenly Father. Goodness, Lord, the, the world in which we are living in now is full of darkness sometimes. And it is hard to even begin to even preach about the idea of joy, of complete joy, of having joy. But, oh, Heavenly Father, send us out as your ambassadors, as beacons of your light, so that we may help and shine a light in dark times for folks, that they would have hope and that they would have joy in knowing that their Heavenly Father is chasing and pursuing after them. May us pursue and press on, onward to the goal that you have set before us and that you have attained already for us. So that when we are in the midst of dark times, we can have that glimmer, a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of light, and that others would also see the same. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.